Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. We are going to continue this series. I read this article this week in um, online, right? Isn't that where you read? Does anybody get newspapers anymore on paper? Yeah, yeah, so, okay, one, great. Um, two, um, so I read this article online uh, this week that was a little bit disturbing, right, that, that had this statistic, and you guys heard of Pew Research Center? You guys know that term? Like, Pew Research Center had uh, published a graphic that showed the trend of people in America who consider themselves Christians, and I think I have that up here. Can you guys see that Okay. 1972, 90% of Americans claim to be Christians. This is self-selection. It's not anybody like going around. Uh, what they published is in 2020, 64% of Americans claim to be Christians. And when they work it out, you, and if you can read all that, it's real small. You probably can't. The, the top part says, best case scenario, nobody switches religions for the next 50 years. Nobody switches religions for the best case, there will be 54% of people in America who claim to be Christians. Worst case is, I think, probably closer to the, to the reality, 35%. 35% of people by 2070, over the next 50 years, 35% of people in America will claim to be Christians. And I don't know if that's like disconcerting to you or not. Uh, I know these things, as you read them, they sort of go, oh, I kind of feel that way, right? Don't you feel a little bit like you know, people are kind of walking away from Christianity. And Ed Stetzer is a, is a pastor, an author, a researcher, commentator, all things church guru uh, on church trends. And a few years ago, he pointed out this, this helpful way to think about what's happening in church trends. What he said is, there are basically three p- kinds of people who claim the title Christian. There are three kinds of people who claim to be Christians. The first kind of people that claimed to be Christians, he said, were cultural Christians. These are the people who, they got the, the survey, and it says, what, what religion are you? And they're like, well, I know I'm not Jewish. I'm not, I know I'm not Hindu. I know I'm not Buddhist. I'm not Muslim. I must be a Christian. And they check the box Christian because they're nothing else. Then the second group of people is, he said, there are congregational Christians. And congregational Christians are people whose lives are not really wrapped around a deeply held belief in Jesus, but they're willing to participate in Christian things. So they come to church sometimes. Uh, They maybe have been for a baptism, and they've maybe done a number of Christian things, but their life is not founded on Jesus. It's not wrapped around Jesus. But they also would claim to be Christians. The third one is convictional Christians. These are people who orient their entire lives around Jesus. And that would be like the goal, right? Our goal is to be people whose lives are completely, uh, we surround our lives entirely around the person of Jesus. When questions come, the question isn't how do I feel about it? The question is, what does Jesus think, right? This is what we would hope for. And what Ed Stetzer points out is that convictional Christians have always made up about 25%. Like that statistic has basically stayed flat for the last hundred years. They always make up about 25%. But what he said is, in the last 50 years, the other two groups have gradually shrunk. So the, the other, as, as it has become more okay 
for people to say, I'm, you know, I just have no religious affiliation, people have opted that way. People have chosen. I'm not affiliated with any sort of, like, if I'm not Jewish, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Buddhist, I'm also not Christian. I'm just none of the above. That the largest growing group of religious belief is actually none. I have no religious belief. And so what he said is, in essence, marginally religious people are just not choosing to be Christian anymore. They're not trying to claim it. They're not trying to be a part of Christian things anymore. They're just sort of opting to be whatever else they want to be. And so as they do so, many have grown hostile towards Christianity. And so as they walk away, they, they, they sort of point out the problems. They point out the things that they don't like. And increasingly, what Ed Stetzer says is that what used to be people who sort of were like, didn't really care one way or the other about Christianity, which is where you did evangelism, they actually have grown more hostile to faith in Jesus. And so over time, what it feels like is that the world is against us, right? You've seen this. But the question I want to look at today is as many people walk away, is there any hope? Like, is there anything the church has to offer? Is there anything the church of Jesus Christ can point to or hand out and say, this is a thing you haven't considered? Like, for the marginally religious person, is there anything that we have to offer, or have they tried it and decided they found it wanting? That's what I want to look at today, because the fact of the matter is, whether you are someone who's considered marginally religious, like, I don't know how many of you would put your hands up for that, probably shouldn't ask, but if you are marginally religious, even if you're not marginally re religious, you probably know people all around you who are, who are just sort of one or two more steps away from saying, I'm just... I'm, not, I'm done with the whole thing. I'm going to walk away from the whole thing because it just doesn't really do anything for me. And so the question I want to ask today is, is there hope? Is there anything that we have to offer those who are marginally religious? We began this series called Come and See a few weeks ago, and the idea was that if we actually want to see people come to faith, we actually be, have to be people who are people of faith. If we want to offer Jesus as good news, we actually have to be people who experience Jesus as good news. We have to be people who are eating what we're selling to other people, right? Who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we offer it to others. And so that's the, the idea behind the series. And I began with this two-part message, uh, if you, some of you will remember, that a real encounter with Jesus propels you into the world to tell the story, right? That if you have a real encounter with Jesus, what will naturally happen is you'll want to tell that story to people around you, and it actually becomes the seedbed for faith for people. And so today what I want to talk about is Jesus is good news for marginally religious people. The title I've given to this message is, You Don't Have to Be Religious to Encounter Jesus. Would you pray with me? And we're going to look at uh, Luke. So Lord, I do just welcome you into this space, and I pray God that you would come in greater measure. Lord, that you do have a word for each person here. And more than that, Lord, you have an encounter that you desire to meet face-to-face -face with each person who's here. And so, God, I pray that you would enable me to get out of the way. Lord, that I would speak only the words that you have given me to say. Lord, let none of me be seen. Lord, would you receive all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look at, uh, turn your Bible, Luke chapter 19. This is going to be a fun story. 
Some of you know where this is going, maybe. Luke chapter 19, it's a story that some of you will be familiar with. We're going to begin in verse 1. It says this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, if you grew up in and around church, this song is familiar, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? And if we could sing the whole song. <laughs> Maybe if I just got out of the way, you all would sing the song in perfect harmony. But if you've ever like, tried to unpack what that song is about, it's about this guy named Zacchaeus who is too short to see Jesus, right? And maybe we shouldn't dig too deeply into the theology of kids' songs, but I've often wondered, why wouldn't they let this short guy just get to the front to see? It's not like they couldn't see over the top of him. Who's, like, who's so cruel that they're not going to let the short guy go see Jesus? I don't understand. But what we miss in the song is clear in the text. If you look at verse 2, there's no way, there's no way they're going to let Zacchaeus come through, and here's why. It says, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. See, to be a tax collector in Jericho meant that you were one of the people who sold out to the Roman occupation. See, Rome, when they would occupy a nation, they would go to try to collect taxes from these people, and so when they occupied Israel, they, they were trying to collect taxes. And the way Rome would do it is they would hire locals to be the tax collectors. And the reason was, is they know the customs. And so if a Roman person came to try to, to collect taxes, they would say, oh, I don't have it to give. But a local person would know whether or not they were lying. And so the Romans would hire local people to be tax collectors. And so a little bit, it makes you a traitor, right? Like you, you've sold out to these people who have occupied our land. And Zacchaeus had sold out and had chosen to sort of take care of himself. The problem with being a tax collector was Rome would say, we want whatever percent. Let's say it's 20%. We want you to collect 20% tax from everybody. The way a tax collector would function is they would say, well, I have to pay 20% of everybody's income to Rome, so I'm going to collect 40%. From all of my all of my fellow Israelites. I'm gonna keep 20 and I'm gonna give Rome 20. And there was basically no limit to the extortion that could happen. Do you see how this works? The way that a tax collector made money was by extorting his fellow Jews. And so this is a problem because you've sold out our, our people, you're a traitor, and you're building your wealth on, on the backs of poor people. And so Zacchaeus was like taking money from his own people. But not only that, it says that, that uh, Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. He's like 
the chief traitor. He's someone who is so good at collecting taxes that Rome gave him a promotion. He now has tax collectors under him, and he actually perpetuates the system of extortion of the Jewish people. And so that's like extra hate, right? So there's no way these people are going to let him through to see Jesus. And all of this is happening in the midst of the nation of Israel, right? These are God's people, right? God rescued them, and if you read through the Old Testament, they, God gave them his law. They were his chosen people. They were special, right? And the question might arise in your mind, how is it that someone amongst God's people would not be so formed by God's truth? How does that happen? How does it happen that within the, the group of God's people, there would be anyone who would sell out their own people for the occupation? How does this happen? And of course, if you look through the Old Testament, what you discover is Israel's been doing this to themselves for a long time. If you look at the story of the exile, the reason God exiles the nation of Israel from the land is because they mistreat the poor, they mistreat the immigrant, they mistreat the widow. They've done this for a long time, and so God says, I'm going to extend judgment. And so Zacchaeus sort of becomes this personal illustration of what the nation of Israel has been doing for a long time. And if we're honest, he's a personal illustration of what we see in the church now. Have you seen that? Have you seen? If you wonder how it is that, that people who are among the body of Christ could steal from one another, could cheat one another, could not base their entire lives on Jesus... And the question that should come up is, how is it that someone could encounter Jesus and not be radically changed? How is it that somebody could participate in a church for a really long time, and then you discover, oh, that's not who they were at all? I, knew, I, I don't know if you guys remember this a number of years ago that, um, I forget which news program brought it up. Do you guys remember the, the, the BTK killer? Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? This guy was a president of his Lutheran congregation. And the BTK was the bind, torture, and kill, was what it stood for. And so this guy was the president of his Lutheran congregation. And at the end of it, they discovered that this guy was a serial killer. And you wonder, how is it that somebody could be a part of the body of Christ and not be changed? How is it that this kind of thing happens? And if the question doesn't come up for you naturally, let me help you. I'm so helpful. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 23, he says this. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And in essence, he's saying, if you're going to come and offer worship to God, you know, whether that's I'm going to come and I'm going to sing songs of worship to God, or I'm going to come and I'm going to give my offering of money to God, I'm going to come, I'm going to serve God, I'm going to worship with my service. Whatever it is that you're choosing to give, what Jesus says is that before you offer this gift, if you discover, if you remember that somebody has something against you, that your relationships with somebody are a little out of balance, there's, there's some unreconciled differences, there's some, some, there's some offense in the relationships that you have, what Jesus says is you should stop, go reconcile your relationships and then come back and offer, right? I mean, this is just, just, it's just Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a fairly simple text. But what we find 
is that when we experience broken relationships, what we tend to do is we go, well, if Jesus knew the upbringing I had, he would know why and would, would be okay with me not reconciling with my parents. He doesn't know. Like he does, if he knew the way that they abused me as I was growing up, he'd be okay with it. Or we say, you know, I know that my family is a mess and my spouse and I have, have really got a, we got a strained relationship. But if Jesus knew what was actually going on, he would be okay with it. Or if Jesus knew, like, the way my neighbors behave, like, the music is all night and the pot just rolls out, he would be okay with me not fixing relationships with my neighbors, right? Don't we just sort of, like, excuse it for some, some reason? And so week in and week out, we show up and we try to offer our worship to Jesus as Lord. And then all week we deny Jesus' lordship with the way we live our lives. And we can't figure out why it is that we don't feel as close to God as we used to. Have you seen this in your life? It's like we sort of make our own little cutouts, don't we? We sort of like, we make our own little, little things where God would be okay with because it's in my life. Don't we? Don't we do that? Or let me try another one since we're on a, on a roll here. Cover to cover, Scripture is clear that God's people are to care for the poor, the widow, the immigrant, immigrant, the orphan. That we're supposed to be a people that, who don't just tolerate these people. We're actually supposed to advocate for those who are on the margins and care for those who don't have a voice. Cover to cover, it's clear. You have to actually try to miss those passages. You know that? Like you actually have to, you have to take, tear out like whole chapters of the Bible. Not even whole chapters, whole books of the Bible. Like it's really, really, really clear, isn't it? All the way through. But if we look at our own lives, will we be able to actually point out the ways that we do this? Not just tolerate people who are different than us, advocate for. Could we find that in our lives? And if not, why not? And do we make an excuse for why God would be okay with us not doing that? How about another one? You guys want to do one more? Isn't this fun? You guys are like, this is terrible. This is the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. It's a clear teaching of Scripture that God's people are supposed to be people of integrity, right? That we're supposed to be people who, when we say something, our word is as good as done, right? Am I on fair footing there? If, but if we look at our lives, would we be able to say, yeah, that's true. People around me can count on my word. And more importantly, would the people that we work with say that? And if not, why not? Why is it that we would say, well, God would be okay with me sort of fudging the truth here, and he doesn't need to know, they don't need to know that I made this little bit of money, and, you know, so I don't have to report on my taxes, because but God's people are supposed to be people of integrity. What, where do we get the, the right to make the cutout? You know, it's so uncommon. It's so uncommon to find people who encounter something that Jesus says in Scripture, and our default posture is to reorient our lives around it. Do you know that? That's an uncommon thing. Most of the time what we do is we go, oh, love our neighbor. All right, I'm going to try that, right? Have you ever done this? I'm going to try to do this thing that I found in Scripture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And then you try it, and you're like, this is hard, <laughs> right? 
this is hard. I'm actually supposed to be kind to people who hate me. I can't be kind to people who just dislike me. And yet Jesus calls us to this. And what we discover is it's so hard. And so we decide that there's probably a reason Jesus wouldn't want us to devote our lives to becoming the kind of people who could live that way. And we sort of make our excuses, don't we? We sort of go, well, you know, it's okay because Jesus knows it's hard and he doesn't, he just doesn't care that much. It's a suggestion, but it's not. And over time, we verbalize that Jesus is Lord, but we demonstrate that Jesus is not, that I make my own way. We're getting close, just like everybody here. I mean, I've already lumped myself in this. We mouth the right things, but our actions betray what we actually believe. And it's our, a slow process, but our faith, our practice of faith, then becomes confined to the things that we can just naturally do well, right? I really like to read, so I read scripture, and that's the practice of my faith. None of the other things, we just confine it, and we decide that God doesn't care all that much about the other things, because see, I'm doing this one really well, don't we? Are we close? See, that's probably the situation that Zacchaeus was in. You know, he's like, well, you know, God seemed far off. He's, you know, he's not really been here. He hasn't sent us a prophet in a while. We show up to the temple and offer our sacrifices, but we don't see the manifest presence like we used to. He just doesn't seem to care anymore. And I got, you know, I'm hungry and I need to feed myself and God would certainly want me to feed myself. So I'm, I'm just going to take this job that by, it's, it's open to everybody. Anybody could take this job, right? Anybody could become a tax collector. They're constantly looking for them. So I'm just going to do this. After all, God wants me to provide for myself, doesn't he? God helps those who help themselves. By the way, that's not in the Bible. But that's how it happens. Right? We rationalize and we justify, and over time, we stop taking God seriously in matters that we can't control. So we continue on with the activities of God's people, and we become people who worship Him with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. That's how it happens. You guys depressed yet? You're like, where's the good news? I came to church for some good news. Everybody else went to the beach. I came to church for good news. But here's why I start this way. There is good news. And maybe that describes your situation today. Maybe that's where you are. Like maybe you're like, yeah, I, I come, I do the, the, the thing on Sunday, but the rest of my week, I live the way I want to. You know, the rest of the week, I kind of make my own way. That's just the way I do life. You'd be a little bit of afraid if we would meet your coworkers. Right? You guys keep Keep those separate. Or maybe that's not you, but maybe you know people that this is their life. That when the chips are actually down, they live their lives on their own rather than surrounded by Jesus. The point I want to make before I get to the good news is that we're all only a few steps away. We're all only just a few justifications just a few rationalizations, just a few, eh, you know, I can fudge this, I can, we'll just pretend that's not real. We're all just a few away from being very marginal Christians who only sort of base our lives on Jesus. And statistically, that says that eventually we would leave 
I want us to feel that. Do you feel that? Are you sick of this now? Everybody says no. Okay, here we go. <laughs> if the story ended right here, if I just said, okay, we're going to pray and have a nice day, it would be a really depressing message, wouldn't it? Here's the good news, though. Look at verse 4. I want you to pay attention to how this encounter happened. So he, this is uh, Zacchaeus, ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. You know, this exchange is really irregular. Like, think about it for a minute. Jesus just sort of like imposes. She's like, I'm going to come stay at your house. Like, I mean, I want a little bit of advance notice. I want to be able to like pick up, you know, the dirty clothes, right? All that stuff. But because of the dynamic we described earlier around tax collectors, even if Zacchaeus wanted Jesus to come to his house, he wouldn't dare ask. He wouldn't dare ask. There'd be too much shame. There's no way I'm going to ask and invite Jesus to my house. On the other side... There's no way any self-respecting Jew is going to believe that Jesus would want anything to do with this tax collector. So the chasm is really, really wide, right? Do you see this? The gap is like impossible. Like each of them cannot possibly want to associate with the other, and they can't possibly associate. And yet, Jesus doesn't wait for Zacchaeus to get his life together. Zacchaeus climbs a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And who knows why? Maybe it's just like he's heard about Jesus. He's like, I'm curious about this guy. And Jesus sees him and sees right in. And he says, I'm going to come to your house. That's what Jesus does with all of us, doesn't he? Doesn't Jesus bridge the impossible gap every time? He doesn't wait for us to get it figured out. So much of the way the church has, has gone about our business in the past 50 years is to say, if you get yourself right, you're welcome here. Then Jesus goes, no, 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 no. I don't have any faith in your ability to get yourself right. Let me come to you. Isn't that good news? Jesus doesn't wait for you to get your life in order before he comes to you. See, what happens here is Zacchaeus could never have fellowship with anybody else in town. Nobody was going to offer him fellowship. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you fellowship before I ask your life to change. Isn't that beautiful? Like Jesus doesn't wait for him to get it all figured out. And where there's a gap, Jesus doesn't wait for us to get our lives in order and to finally get, get things buttoned up and cleaned up enough to come to church. Jesus just jumps right over the gap. And this has implications for us, doesn't it? Like if you look at that graph that I showed you, increasingly people aren't going to come here hoping that they'll find something of value. We're going to have to be people who do what Jesus did and bridge that gap for people. Do you know that? Like the people around you are desperately waiting for you to welcome them in. I mean, maybe... Maybe that's you. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're sort of like in this space of like, you know, I have lived my own way, very much so. You know, I've sort of made excuses for a long time about why, you know, God won't care about the way I live my life the rest of the week. I come to church on Sunday, but, you know, I put on my Jesus on Sunday and then I put on my regular life the rest of the week. 
And Jesus is not waiting for you to fix that before he'll come to you and encounter. Maybe you've even decided that there's no way God would bring his goodness to you. You've sort of gone, you know, I know God knows how I live my life, and there's no reason he would give his goodness to me. After all, I'm just really hoping for some sort of eternal security. So I keep coming, and I keep doing, you know, showing up, but I'm living my own way. You know, Jesus doesn't wait for you to fix it, to offer his goodness to you. Do you know that? That's good news. That's really good news. And the good news is that Jesus doesn't expect you to, to fix your life before he offers you fellowship. Do you know how long Zacchaeus had probably longed for a relationship with someone else? Just genuine relationship. Couldn't get genuine relationship. The best he could maybe hope for is if he had like given away and given up all of his stuff, they maybe would have welcomed him back. Probably not. Nobody would have trusted him. Jesus says, I'll offer you love and I'll offer you fellowship before you get yourself right. That's, that's the good news. That's the gospel. And it's scandalous. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. You know, uh, everyone around Jesus wants the gospel to be, get cleaned up and then maybe you can come and have salvation. Right? Isn't that what they're saying right there? They're like, how dare he associate with this guy? Everyone around wants that. And you know what? That's true of everyone who thinks at some level that they've earned what they have when it comes to relationship with God. Do you know that's true? Like, everyone who thinks that somehow they have something that other people can't have when it comes to relationship with God, they get really offended when the really broken people come to relationship with God. Do you know that? A lot of times, here's how they sit there. I've experienced this over the years, right, as I've, I've preached, is people will come to me afterwards and be like, hey, I need to talk to you. They want to help me. I need to talk to you. Hey, you know, this, you preach about grace too much. You know, you know people got to know that they got to be holy. You know that, right? You got to preach on holiness, and you got to preach on righteousness. You got you to tell people they got to act right. You know, they need to live holy lives. You can't just be running around here making it so easy for people. And I don't, I mean, people say more than they realize they're saying when they say that to me. I believe absolutely we need to teach people how to live lives that please God. Absolutely. But Jesus offers love and fellowship before Zacchaeus ever pleases God. The way in is love and welcome and fellowship. You know, the only people that Jesus actually confronts with holiness and their morality right off the bat, are people who think they already have earned it. Everyone else, Jesus offers welcome and offers love to. And what Jesus believes is that if I offer love, grace, and fellowship, what follows is a changed life. Do you know that? Look at verse 6. Or, sorry, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up, and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. If he had done this before, maybe everybody else would have been happier with him. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Not because he gave all this stuff, but the giving was evidence. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. 
Jesus extends fellowship to Zacchaeus, and it's something that Zacchaeus had been starved of for years. And the effect of offering love and fellowship is that his heart is changed. And in the encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus found something that was worth more than all the wealth that he had been pursuing. And so he opened his hands to his wealth that he could cling to Jesus. That's what actually happened. And you know this is what always happens when you have an encounter with Jesus? In order to cling to Jesus, you have to let go of whatever idol you have in your hand. If money is an idol to you, and let me suggest, you live in the wealthiest nation in the world. You live in a place that constantly wants you to go get more. So I'm not saying that money is an idol for you. I'm just saying you live in a culture that puts it on you all the time. If money is an idol for you, an encounter of Jesus makes you more generous. You have to let go of it to cling to Jesus. And if it's hard for you to be generous, might I suggest that what you lack is a real encounter with Jesus, where you discover that he's worth more than all the possessions and wealth you have. And what's beautiful about this story, and I'll wrap it up here, what's beautiful about this story is that this encounter with Jesus propels Zacchaeus into like kingdom impact, like kingdom ministry. Because what he does is he doesn't just sort of say, well, I'm going to get rid of my money like crazy. He says, I'm going to give all of this wealth that I've accumulated to the people who need it the most. Do you see that? Like he lifts up the people who are on the bottom of the economic spectrum. Encounter with Jesus has a way of always putting things to right. The reversal of Zacchaeus' greed is, is to give generously to those in need. You know, much of the critique of people who have walked away, and if we think about that line that was on that graph, who will walk away, is that their encounter with Christians is that they don't look a lot like Jesus. I would imagine in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, all your classes, the people who have wandered off from faith, one of the big critiques is you guys just don't look like Jesus. And sometimes I think those are not fair, but I think a lot of times there's something to it. But what if we were a kind of people who lived into encounter with Jesus and actually gave hope to those who are marginally religious? What if we actually lived into that? Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.